Welcome to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Did you know that over 95% of all businesses fail within the first 10 years? By listening in to what Bob's guests have to say, plus direction from Bob Pritchard himself, it's our intention that you won't be among those statistics. Now, here's your host, Bob Pritchard. Hello, world. Welcome to the 300 edition of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Channel. 300 shows, a lot of shows, <laughs> makes you realize just how quick time flies. We're broadcasting across the world this week from our studio on Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles, California, where technology meets entertainment. It's really hard to believe that we've been doing this show for six years and covered over 1,500 business stories, plus a multitude of stories about literally hundreds of entrepreneurs. It's an achievement that I'm pretty proud of. We've also got a great guest on today's show, a friend of mine who was the first singer to have three successive number one top hits in the UK. He was the first million selling record in the UK, had the Beatles as his support act on his UK tour, did a Royal Command performance for Queen Elizabeth and the Duke of Edinburgh, appearing with Dame Shirley Bassey, Tony Bennett, Jack Benny, Max Bygraves, the Dave Clark Five, Peter Cook, Johnny Halliday, Spike Milligan, Dudley Moore, Peter Paul and Mary, Peter Sellers, Dusty Springfield, the whole bunch more. Wow, what a what a history this guy's got. Now you got a you've got about twelve minutes to guess who he is when he's when he's on. And if you think you know, we have a prize for you on our three hundredth show for the first person to email me with the answer who is my guest you've got 12 minutes to email me at bob at bobpritchard.com that's bob at bobpritchard.com and you will win if you can name my guest so how do you find your next hot date most people have stopped going to bars and they use dating apps that rely on quick swipes a few clicks and superficial judgments but they might be obsolete soon. Now we can let our wearables do the work for us. The tech market is now into matchmaking. I read this on a plane the other day, coming back to the States. So it's amazing what you can find out from Hemispheres magazine. Students at Imperial College in London Innovation Design Engineering program boy, have developed a wearable that notifies you if somebody is checking you out. The tentacle-like Ripple uses tiny cameras to sense the gazes you attract from those around you and flexes in their direction if the attraction is mutual. The always romantic French are getting in on the game as well. Jean Mayer created the dating app Once which can be synced with a Fitbit or an Android smartwatch to measure spikes in heart rate. <laughs> a positive sign of physical attraction when a user sees a picture of a suggested partner. The user can then send that data to a match. Now, measuring these physical reactions, it's just scratching the surface. When you gather enough data, you'll be able to define the entire formula of why anyone's attracted anyone. The approach hints at the possible future of dating. The design firm, firm IDEO, IDEO has a social AI concept called Spirit, which employs biosensors that would either swallow or have implanted. And these sensors would process and transmit our personal data to create emotional profiles and measure how we're affected by interactions with different people. Over time, Spirit's AI would discern patterns in our in interactions. The idea is that when compatible people meet, the sensors will alert you with a tangible physical feeling. MIT's also created wearable software to detect a person's emotions based on speech patterns and physiological signals. Within two or three years, technology could be used to improve every social interaction. That's good because some of mine suck. <laughs> In the not-too-distant future, when we meet someone new, our wearable could talk to their wearable and then report back what we have in common. 
If you meet someone you've already met, your device device could remind you what you were talking about last time or even how the conversation ended. Now, that could save you a hell of a lot of embarrassment and help you get lucky a lot quicker. Now, do you get my 30-second daily read business newsletter? We've got about 1.7 million subscribers daily. takes about 30 seconds, and we tackle a different subject every day from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, and blockchain. It's free, and its information's invaluable. If you don't, go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll. And we just got a winner. We just got a winner from the UK. So that's good. That's the winner to the competition with who is my guest today. And it's typical that it should come from the UK, I suppose, because that's where it all happened or before we went to America. I must confess to having some concerns when airline tickets went paperless. And then I was concerned again when I could store my boarding pass on my smartphone now, Delta's announced that some customers can now use their fingerprint instead of a boarding pass to get on its planes. That sounds pretty convenient to me. What I want to know is if your fingerprint is your boarding pass, how the hell do you know what your seat number is? That one I haven't got an answer to yet. But Delta started piloting biometric authentication in May allowing eligible Delta SkyMile members to use their fingerprint as proof of identity at the Sky Club. Now that same convenience is available as part of the boarding process. So customers can forego a paper or mobile boarding pass in favour of using fingertips as proof of identity to board their plane. I guess that's pretty foolproof. This new option is available only for Delta SkyMiles members who are enrolled in CLIA, which is a biometric identity verification platform that lets you speed through security lines in five minutes or less. This summer, Delta plans to launch the final phase of its biometric test, allowing members to use their fingerprints to check your bags. I must admit, I had a great experience with United, I always fly United if I can, and I had a great experience. I've been away overseas for the past couple of weeks, and coming back to the States, boarding the flight at the other end took five and a half minutes from getting out of my Uber until I got to the lounge, five and a half minutes, and when I arrived in LA, from arriving from the doors opening to getting the bags and getting out to pick up my Uber was about 13 minutes. Now, that's fantastic. That's pretty hard to complain about. So, United, thank you. Fantastic. Now, eligible customers of Delta will be able to transverse DCA as they do today and simply use their fingerprint instead of pulling out their boarding pass. If all goes well with this pilot, customers throughout Delta's domestic network will start seeing this capability in a matter of months, not years, months. So Delta is really delivering the future now. Consumer and employee feedback has been great so far. And the biometric verification has a higher level of accuracy than paper boarding passes. And it also gives agents more time to assist customers with seat changes and other tasks instead of having to scan individual tickets. Customers also have less to keep track of as you travel through the airport. You need to, you know, carry so much crap when you're going through an airport. Now, LG last week deployed a number of robots at the Incheon International Airport in South Korea, which will roam around providing information and assistance to travellers. The new airport guide robots can understand Korean, English, Chinese and Japanese and connect to the airport's central server to provide information about boarding times, the location of restaurants and shops and more. So that's pretty cool. Robots, good idea. Now, are you constantly misplacing your work security badge or you can't find change for the bloody vending machine? 
Well, those days are over. Three Square Market, a company in Wisconsin, is partnering with Biohacks to offer employees microchips implanted in their hands for identification. The tiny implantable RFID chips about the size of a grain of rice use near-field communications, and that's the same technology found in contactless credit cards and mobile payment systems to let employees make purchases in the company's break room mini-market, to open doors, log into their computers, use the copy machine, and more. It's predicted that implantable chips will be used in the future to do everything from unlocking your phone to sharing business cards and store your medical and health information. This technology will become standardised, allowing you to use this as your passport, use it on public transport, all purchasing opportunities and more. This chip technology is also possibly the next evolution in payment systems, which means you have your bank in the palm of your hand. Of course, the conspiracy theorists say that um, they will start slow with things that seem innocent to get you used to it, and then they'll start using them for everything. They suggest that when your personal info is on a chip, the government has access to it, and it can be leaked or stolen off their computers by hackers. It does, however, raise a number of questions, I've got to admit, both privacy and health-related. These chips are supposedly secure and encrypted, but encryption is a pretty vague term, which could include anything from a truly secure product to something that is easily hackable. A microchip implanted today for allow for easy building access and payments could in theory be used later in much more invasive ways. It could track your employees' bathroom breaks or lunch breaks without your consent or even with your knowledge, without your knowledge. Once implanted, it's very hard to predict or stop a future widening of their usage. Also, what happens if the um, chip migrates somewhere else in your body? Hmm. No question, though. Chips inserted in your body somewhere are the way of the future. Now, I'm trying to make friends outside outside Facebook and using the same principles. So now I walk down the street and tell passers-by what I've eaten, how I feel, when I went to the bathroom, what I did the night before, photograph of my food, and tell them what I'm going to do tomorrow. Then I give these passers-by pictures of my family, my dog, me gardening, me at a restaurant. I also listen to their conversations and tell them I love them. And it works already. I've got three people following me, two cops and a psychiatrist. (laughs) Have you looked at the shit that's on Facebook? It is unbelievable. Why anybody thinks you are interested in all their crap is beyond me. Now, I've got a winner in our competition to guess today's guest, Don Kay from Manchester in England. It figures that he'd be from England because my guest also won the British Male Vocalist Award, the International Male Entertainer of the Year for the International Country and Western Music Association of America, gold and platinum albums in the USA, Australia and Europe. He did television specials and concert tours across the USA, UK, mainland Europe, Japan, South Africa and Australia. And I'm very proud to welcome to the 300th Bob Pritchard Radio Show right after this short break, my friend, the legendary Frank Ifield. Do you want your business to achieve results you never thought possible? Bob Pritchard is recognized as the business leader's advisor and has 30 years of experience as a straight-talking troubleshooter for Fortune 500 companies and SMEs across the world. Whether you need a checkup across all departments of your business or simply want to improve marketing, advertising, performance measurement, or some other area, Bob Pritchard will work his magic so you can blow away your competition. Bob Pritchard is also one of the most in-demand speakers in the world. 
Over 1,500 clients on five continents and countless standing ovations are a testament to how he changes the fortunes of business. Pick up Bob's new book, Kick-Ass Business and Marketing Secrets, at your nearest bookstore or visit Bob's website at www.bobpritchard.com. Remember, if you want to be successful, call Bob Pritchard now. Worldwide phone numbers and more information can be found at bobpritchard.com. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the 300th edition of the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking Radio Show. Where over the past five and a half years, six years, we've given you insights into the lives of over 300 of the world's most interesting people. We've talked about what they do, challenges that they've faced. And what we try to do is try to work out what it is that really makes them tick. And today's no exception. You know, the 300th show's a pretty big milestone for me. And uh, considering we started off about six years ago on a 13-week trial, and that 13-week trial's blown out to nearly six years. So that's, that's pretty good. We're proud of that. Now, for the 300th show, we wanted to have a special guest. And we've got one. And I'm proud to call him a friend. We were at lunch the other day, I asked, and I asked him to come on the show. He's one of the entertainment industry's really great guys. So I'm going to start off with a musical quiz for you. What artist cut his first record at 13 years old, toured England with the Beatles as his support act, with the first sold-out show at the Embassy Cinema Inn of Petersburg on December the 2nd, 1962, and had the Bee Gees as backup singers on one of his hits. Anybody got a clue yet? No? Okay, I'll keep going. I Remember You was a mind-boggling, record-breaking one million copies. Now think back into the 60s, a million copies was unbelievable, not like it's much easier, to, still hard, but much easier today. It was a smash hit. Smash and the Guinness Book of Records lists him as the first artist to have three number ones in a row in Britain and number f- and four number one hits in total. And he toured with the likes of Dwayne Eddy and the Everly Brothers. You got it yet? No? Okay. I'll keep going. I'll give you a couple more clues. He appeared at, appeared at the Royal Command performance for Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. And how about, listen to this list of people that he appeared with. Dame Shirley Bassey, Tony Bennett, Jack Benny, Max Bygraves, the Dave Clark Five, Peter Cook, Johnny Halliday, I love Johnny Halliday, Spike Milligan, Dudley Moore, Peter Paul and Mary, Peter Sellers and Dusty Springfield. That's not a bad little um, group to be associated with. Wow. He also appeared at the London Palladium, the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. Worked it out yet? No? Okay, we'll keep going. He also won the Best British Male Vocalist, International Male Entertainer of the Year in the International Country and Western Music Association of America. Got gold and platinum albums in the USA, Australia and Europe and did TV specials and concert tours across America, the UK, mainland Europe, Japan, South Africa, and Australia. Okay, final clue. We know the Bee Gees, the Easy Beats, Little River Band, NXS, ACDC, Men at Work, Keith Urban, Olivia Newton-John, and a whole bunch of others are all huge acts globally. But my guest today was the very first Australian to break the charts overseas. Okay, enough suspense. I'm very proud to welcome to the 300th Bob Pritchard Radio Show my friend, the legendary Frank Ifield. Hi, mate. You are being heard right around the world. Hi, Bob. It's good to speak to you again, mate. <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder who you were talking about there for a second. <laughs> you certainly started it all out, didn't you? 
you have had an extraordinary show business career. So let's just chat through how some of it happened. When you're at, when you're at school, did you want to have a career in music or did you want to be a fireman or a plumber or something else? Well, I've, I've always wanted to be in the entertainment industry since I first got in front of an audience. And I've got to tell you where that was. <laughs> it was in the air raid shelters during the war. I was six years old and I got up in front of the class and we sang things like 10 green bottles and one man went to mow and those sort of things. <laughs> and I knew from that moment that that was what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. <laughs> for your 11th birthday, your parents gave you a ukulele. I hate ukuleles. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> <laughs> and you began to learn to play and sing. Now, when you were 12, yeah, I, your I, grandmother I gave you a proper guitar. Uh, yeah. And quoting you, at 13, I conned my way into appearing on a radio amateur hour, and that led to a recording contract with EMI. When you say you conned your way in, your words, not mine, what did you mean by that? It's a pretty long story, actually. I was uh, going around sort of doing uh, amateur shows, and um, I won this particular show, I remember, down in, in North Ride, a place called Eaton Park. I don't know if you remember that. No. <laughs> and it was, on a, it was on a Sunday. And what happened was that um, the, you know, I won that, and because with, with extra money in my pocket now, I felt like a millionaire. <laughs> I earned all of five pounds. <laughs> and I thought, uh, now's the moment where I should go and see the top of the bill and find out how to get onto records. And that's what happened. They, t they told me the first thing I should do is to go down to Southern Music um, and meet a friend of theirs called Alan Crawford. And uh, he'd set me right and give me some, some special music that had been written in, in America. And, and, yeah. So um, I went over there the following day and um, played hooky from school to do it <laughs> and um, talked to him about the fact that, uh, you know, I needed some music. And he said, yes, but I can't just hand anything out willy-nilly to, to people coming off the street like that. You've got to be on record. So I, I said, I am, and I wasn't. <laughs> he said, who with? And I said, EMI. So he, he said to his secretary, can you, get in, can you get in touch with Mr. Ron Wills at EMI and check the story out? <laughs> as, it, as it happened, Ron Wills was out to lunch. <laughs> Save my bacon. <laughs> but anyway, he let me have a listen to the music, and uh, I picked a couple of songs out of that. Then I dashed over to EMI to cop uh, Ron Wills before he came back from lunch. <laughs> and then uh, I conned him into to listening to me, um, and I sang these couple of songs. He was suitably impressed. But he said, no, in his face, you're not 21, I can tell you. <laughs> you need your parents' uh, um, permission to record. And I thought, well, he's halfway there already. Yeah, I said, well, that'd be okay, you know. And he said, but the, the, the one thing that I'm worried about is that you need a major radio program. So I thought, a little white light won't hurt. And I said, I've got one. I said, it was uh, the Australia's Amateur Hour. And I used to listen to that program every week. <laughs> And it was the only one I know that went nationally, you see. Yeah. And, um, and he says, oh, okay, when are, you, when are you booked for that? And I say, I can let him know this afternoon. <laughs> and so I got back on the train, got back into town, and went up to the offices of, uh, of uh, Australia's Amateur Hour. And, and I knew if I told him I was recording, he'd put me on the show, and he did. <laughs> and so that's how that all came about. And because I went on that, everything else was slotted into place. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? Yeah, that diligence. I remember when I started, um, I used to, I, I was only young too, and I used to get my mum to drive me around all, to the, all, all of the dances that were on around Melbourne, and I used to just go in and plead for them to let me on, not to pay me. So I did yeah. <laughs> dozens and dozens and dozens of show for no money, but I, I learned a lot. So, okay. You, yeah, yeah, but Bob, when you think about it, Bob, we didn't do things for money in those days. We no. did it for the love of doing it. Yeah, that's true. That and I think I've always done that all my life. And it was the best <laughs> way to get girls back then. <laughs>
That's right, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're now working around Sydney and you're getting established and you got called up in the army. Now, that must have been a real bummer. So it was. When you left the army, you well, when you got called up, you must have thought, geez, I've done all this work to get a little bit established and now it's all getting taken away from me. How hard was it to re-establish yourself when you got out of the army? Actually, I thought that my goose was cooked because being in the army at that time was very bad because that time was the change uh, from what we'd been listening to on the radio to the new rock and roll era. Mm. It was um, a time of Bill Haley and then, then it was all the, the country artists like... Um, oh, yeah, there were all those um, artists at the time, like Don Gibson and, uh, yeah. uh, and of course, Elvis Presley and all those. You know. So I, I knew the time was right for me because I could do all those songs because that's, that's the way I was brought up, singing country music. And what happened was that um, I thought that was, and my goose was cooked, but I had a telephone call asking me to come in and do a, what, they, what they called a... Um, uh, a, a screen test. So when I turned up to find out what the screen test was all about, um, they said to me, it, it's for television. I'd never even heard of television, didn't know what it was all about. Anyway, I passed that screen test. And, I sa- and they said, well, you've passed it. And I said, well, what does that all mean? And he said, you've got your own television show. Well, we had the first television show on Channel 9. How old were you, Frank? <laughs> Um, I'd be 19, probably. Yes, 19. Well, you were good-looking in those days, so that's probably why you passed the test. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I don't know why. <laughs> but it was all new to me, and it was new to everybody else at that point, sure. you know. Sure. And uh, it was a great learning curve, because we did 13-week series, and that was followed by a second lot of 13-week series, so... Uh, it was just a you know a great learning curve. Okay, so now now you're a household name. You you've, you understand how to work. You you've really got all that pegged. So you decide all of a sudden, just when you've got yourself established here, to pack up and go to London. Why the hell would you do that? Well, I I just thought at that time that. I, I'd done just about everything I thought that uh, Australia could offer me at that stage. I'd done the television, I'd done the radios, I'd done the shows, um, and you know I'd made records all, all that for you know for the, all those years. Um, and I just told my lovers for the stage, and I thought I'm going to sort of spread my wings, and I'd like to go out and play the London Palladium. Mm-hmm. The reason I picked the London Palladium, I had dreams of playing the London Palladium. Um, don't ask me why I knew it was the London Palladium, but I did. <laughs> and the only way to play the London Palladium is to be in London, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's right. <laughs> so you arrive in London. You arrive in London. You, you, you're fairly green to London. You, you might be a star here but you, in Australia, but you, you're green in London. How did, what did, what were the first thing, how did you get yourself noticed in a, in a huge city with not, not having all the contacts and not all, knowing all the people that you know in Australia? Well, just let me back up a little bit here because I was doing um, the bandstand here in Australia. Yeah. And when I finished that show, this was the very early stages of the bandstand, a man saw me as I was about to go, and he said, look, Frank, he said, I've been following your career with great interest, and I'd like to manage you. And I said, what are your qualifications? And he said, well, I'm the Hoyt's Theatre representative of Wagga Wagga. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, what's that going to do show business? <laughs> but anyway, the one thing he said was, if you'd like me to manage you, there's one stipulation, and that was, you had to be prepared to go to Britain. And I thought it was like he's been, you know, he gets through through my dreams because that's where I needed to go, you know. So based on that, I turned around and said, okay, and we shook hands on it. He came out to Britain and he he, uh, set the ball rolling for me. He tried to get me known. But that was a difficult job for him when I wasn't there. (laughs) And so what had happened at that stage was that um, because people, the word got out, 
And I was doing loads of television shows called Farewells To, and everything was a farewell show then. And my dad said to me, I think you ought to go now to England. And I said, well, he, he hasn't asked for me. He said, but the timing's perfect. He said, um, it, uh, we can put you on the inaugural comet flight, and you'll get the extra publicity because of that. And the reason he knew about it was he was the man, my, my dad was the man who invented the fuel pumps for jet craft during the war. I told him he knew that. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, so I, I, I got to, to London, and Peter Gormley, his name was, yes. uh, was there to meet me. So um, and, uh, it was actually the first day I arrived, I knew we'd done the right sort of thing because the first person I met um, with a whole team of the photographers was uh, Tommy Steele. Oh, Tom, Tommy, Ste Tommy Steele. Yes. <laughs> well, Tommy was coming. Yes, Tommy was coming out to Australia at the time, and he knew I was coming into England, so we swapped publicity, <laughs> and it worked both ways. It was great. Okay, now you've got to be probably the only person that had the Beatles, the most famous group in history, as a support act on a tour. How did that come about? Well, you've got to consider that the Beatles weren't known <laughs> at that point. <laughs> they hadn't even played outside of Liverpool. They've only ever played the cabin. And uh, I was, uh, I had my second record, was Lovesick Blues. And um, I was over doing a tour, and I finished the tour in Liverpool. And uh, <laughs> uh, Brian Epstein came over to see me. I hadn't met Brian before. I didn't know who he was. But he came to see me about the fact that he was handling this new group and uh, he wanted them to get out and, uh, and, and do some touring of, of, of England, you say. So um, he asked me would I put them on his show and I was quite prepared to do that because, you know, I like to help people too, you know. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people helped me. <laughs> and so it, it was um, the first date we had was in Peterborough. So I rang the, the, the manager who was actually producing the show, the producer of the, sh the tour, and uh, asked him whether he could put the, the group called the Beatles on. He hadn't heard of them, but he said, if you think they're that good, it's down to you. He said, we'll put them on. So I said, yes, try them out. So we'll, and he agreed to put them on and, uh, for, the, for both shows. And he said, um, but he wasn't prepared to pay anything. <laughs> but that was okay. <laughs> and uh, so that's where, where they got to, to appear uh, on my show. The thing was, of course, they were very green at that stage. And they'd never done any, um, anything outside, as I say, of Liverpool and the cavern. So they hadn't played theatre before. Mm. And so uh, they, they got there late, so they didn't do a warm-up or anything. Or, uh, yeah, and they didn't know the stage or anything. So the, really, I wasn't surprised when the, the act didn't go over very well with the audience. <laughs> when, you, when, you sat, when you sat and watched the Beatles for the first time, and brand new group, did you have any inkling that they were going to become the greatest group in history? I don't think anybody could have done. Um, I, no, I didn't, really. I thought they were good, and I did like the, the early songs, uh, the first ones I heard. I liked what they had to offer, and I could see that they were going to be good from that point of view. But nobody could ever turn around and thought they were going to be that big. <laughs> yeah, did, the, did the person... Uh, the reason I'm asking is a friend of mine uh, is Ken Cragen, who was... Um, uh, he managed the Rat Pack and, and oh, yeah. Parton and all that lot. And he said to me that the first time he saw Justin Bieber singing a song in his bedroom, he knew he was going to be a star. I mean, the kid was raw, never done any shows, just singing. He said, I just saw this kid and he just had whatever it was and I knew he was going to be a star. You didn't, you didn't get that feeling? You didn't look at these four guys and say, geez, wow, they got sensational chemistry and there's just something I, about them that's... 
I did think that they, they had, yes, I did think they had the chemistry, otherwise I wouldn't have taken and, and put them on. Yeah. Um, I, I did feel they had something to offer, but I never thought there'd be anything more than just another band in England. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't think in terms of, of the, the world at that stage any more than, than I thought of it for myself. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, so when I first went out there, as I say, I went out there to play the Palladium. I didn't even think about records. So when I got all these big records happening, it was more a surprise to me than it was to anybody. Where were you when you, <laughs> where were you, when you first were told that you had the a, a massive number one million seller and you were on top of the pops? When, where I, was, I was working at the time when it all came out uh, with uh, Bruce Chanel. Yeah, the guy who had Hey Baby, you know? Yep. yep. And um, we, we were on tour when the record first came out, and it was played on Jukebox Jury. Do you remember Jukebox Jury? Yeah, I do remember Jury. Yeah. I wish I did, uh, but I do. <laughs> <laughs> and they voted it unanimously as being number one, and um, it went in the first week into the top ten, and, and then the second week it was in the number one position. Well... After about three, after I just got used to it being in number one, it's about three weeks later, and Nori Paramore rang me, and he's, Nori Paramore was the uh, my uh, manager for all, all those records I did, you know, and he rang me to say, I have got some good news for you, he said, you're the first artist to ever sell one million copies in, in Britain, and I, I couldn't believe that, it was just beyond my wildest dreams, but you see, these things happen to you when you don't expect them, don't they? Yeah. That's the beauty of it all. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I've got to ask about the Royal Command performance. I mean, that has got to be the greatest lineup of talent I think I've ever seen on one show. What did... You were still fairly new. I mean, you'd, you'd had hit records, you, you were a star, but you were still reasonably young. And all of a sudden, you're tossed in there with the likes of Dame Shirley Bassey and Tony Bennett and Jack Benny and <laughs> some of the greatest <laughs> stars that have ever been on the planet. Where your knees knocking and your butterflies in the stomach, and you think, oh shit, I can't do this. <laughs> I did. That's you, you've summed that up beautifully. You really have, Bob, because. All this time I've been, you know, planning to be at the London Palladium, and I gave myself, when I left Australia, I gave myself three years to crack it. And, you know, it was almost three years to the dot. And little did I realize that it would coincide with the two-year contract that I had with EMI, right. and it was the last record on, the, uh, on that contract. So it almost didn't make it. <laughs> uh, and it was because of that that the whole thing slotted into place and all my dreams came true exactly as I'd sort of planned it within that three-year period. Yeah, all it was quite amazing. A really lucky bastard. <laughs> yes, it was. Yes, exactly. You know, I mean, you can plan as much as you want to, sure. but don't, they don't always come true. No. And, yet, and yet, for some reason or other, and the thing is that they just dropped into place and you'll find that happens with a lot of artists they'll tell you they they work like billio thinking they're not going to get anywhere but they've got they they've got a dream bang and it happens that way once they've accepted it it happens <laughs> and it's it's strange but that that is what happened to me did but you yes material or did you know you had four fantastic songs in a row um what, who picked those songs for you? Did you find your own material in those days or did the label come to you and say, I think you should record this? Well, this is something I'm going to tell you. that is, I haven't spoken to many people about this because I'm just thinking about what you're saying. Um, when I first got out to Britain, I figured, rightly so, that everybody knew a lot better than me what, I, you know, what, what was needed in the country, mm. right? Yeah. So therefore, I listened to what they had to offer and, and what they were telling me. And I listened too much to them and I wasn't listening to myself. And it wasn't until the end of the contract when I thought, oh, well, I've got nothing to lose. So I thought, I had this song going around in my head and I thought, this is the one I'll go for. Right. And, but 
it brought out something of me rather than something of somebody else telling me what to do. Right. And all my way through, I'd been doing something else that somebody had told me what to do, excepting in the very first time, the very first record I brought out in 1960 um, was a cover version. I, I, I know that's true. But Norris sent me down and he says, have a look and see, have a listen to some of the stuff we've got downstairs. And you come back and let me know what you want. And I came back with this song and Norris said, it's a bit country. Country doesn't sell here very well. Anyway, I, he said, but if you like it, we'll do it. So I did it, and it was a song called Lucky Devil. Yeah. And it went into the top, um, almost in the top 20. It was 22 or something. Anyway, <laughs> the fact that it got up there at all helped me tremendously, as you can probably appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. But... But then, having done that and, and, and got that started, I then were listening to them, what they had to offer, mm. and what they were trying to tell me I should or should not be doing, rather than sticking to it. It wasn't until I came back to that and said, this is what I want to do. <laughs> a little <bit> conviction. <laughs> yes. It's, it's funny, isn't it, how that happened yeah. right at the end of the contract. Well, that was the great, good place to, to have it, yeah, really, wasn't be, it? That's the best time. <laughs> we had, there was no question whether they were going to resign me. Yeah. So, now, <laughs> I guess with the huge global popularity that's now happening with English groups, with the Beatles and the Stones and, and Herman's Hermits and Jerry and the Pacemakers and all the rest of them, the big prize... I guess, even though you're a massive star in England, was to conquer America. Um, you, you did very well in America. How, how did you get your start in America? How did that come about? Well, um, yeah, now this is, this is a bit telling too. I can, I can tell you what happened. <laughs> um, Nora Paramore went to, uh, to um, Capitol Records in America. Mm -hmm. Um, to release uh, my record of I Remember You. And it was up there for them to do so because they were the sister company of EMI. Yep. Anyway, um, nothing seemed to be happening with the song. And Norrie said to me, come on, Frank, we're going to go over to the States and we'll sort this out. So we went to see them at uh, Capitol. And I remember them saying, oh, well, nothing from England ever sells over here anyway. So Norris said, well, if you feel like that about it, we'll take them away <laughs> and put them with somebody else. So they took my record away and they gave it to a company called VJ Label. Now, the VJ Label was a brand new label that actually, uh, one of the big artists at that particular time was the Four Seasons. Yes. And I remember they had their second uh, uh, number one um, just before they released my record of I Remember You. Yeah. Well, <laughs> there again, it went you know, right up in the charts. It was in number one of the, the country charts, number one of the, um, in the uh, easy listening charts, but it was number three, I think, in the, uh, in the, main, in the main chart. Right. <laughs> it did enormously well. Right, now that opened the doors... Uh, well, for me, but it opened the doors also for the fact that they thought nothing from England ever sells because <laughs> they quickly put me back under capital as soon as that, <laughs> that finished. <laughs> but um, they also, uh, the manager of the VJ label said to me, um, he said, you've, you've got your record going. He said, when I bought, bought your record, he said, along with the job lot, I got the Beatles. So he said, I want you to, because you've already established yourself, I have a feeling that they may do well over here too. Because he'd been watching the English, the English situation with them. And um, so he decided we're going to release a record together of Frank Eiffel and the Beatles. Did you know about that? No. No, they released a record, and he said, um, what I'd like to call it, he said, is uh, the British Invasion. Right. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. Anyway, I left it with them, and I agreed to doing it. And it came out, and it was called Jolly What? <laughs> <laughs> and it was um, eight songs of mine and four of the Beatles. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> 
Um, but it ended up, you know, the company went bankrupt and all, all, all the stock was lying around the place. But that became one of the biggest uh, or best, as, as highest selling um, Beatles memorabilia. Yeah. <laughs> that one called Jolly Watt. <laughs> okay, you've just returned from a sold out tour in the UK. How many performances do you still do a year? Do I do? Um, gee. Well, I'm not doing as much now as I used to do in terms of performances because uh, I'm sort of semi-retired. But I go out to England every year and I do, um, you know, probably a run of about 12 shows in, 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 in the month of May. We used to go there. I've just come back from there last yes. May. Yeah. But uh, booking to go back again. So um, that happens every year which is nice because it gives me a chance to see all my mates over there and my, uh, my son and my daughters, which that's great too. Yeah. And it gives um, you a chance to pick up the few dollars that you left on the table before the last time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and because I, 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 don't, I, I don't do a lot of shows because, I, you know, as I say, I, I don't have the stamina to do all that these days. Sure. You know. But I do enjoy getting in there and sort of doing a bit of touring. You know, it, it, it appeals to me. And I love getting, I love the stage. Yeah. You know, I've got to be perfectly honest with you. you <laughs> and I'd rather sort of turn over and die if I, if I wasn't getting back up there on the stage. I just love it that much. <laughs> do you still do any television? Oh, yes, actually, at the moment. <laughs> this is rather interesting, actually. Um, about a year ago, they approached me to, to do a uh, television show because I've been promoting Australian talent uh, overseas for years now, for the last 10 years. And um, <laughs> uh, so I, I got this program idea called the um, Australian Country uh, Spotlight, we call it. Right. Australian Country Spotlight. And I, I co-hosted with actually one of my other award winners. I've got this award I give out every year called the Spur Award. And uh, it's pretty good because I, I love to watch other entertainers getting up there and doing it mm. and widening their territories, you know? Yeah, sure. And, uh, it's, and the girl that I, uh, I put on one oh, about was uh, about 10 years ago. No, it wouldn't be that. Five years ago. Um... We had a big number one over there with, with, with her song. Well, we, we do the co-hosting of, of this television show, which is an hour long, and it goes out um, uh, you know, twice a week over there in Britain. Oh, Only in Britain, though. <laughs> okay, now I'm... It's on free to wear there, you know. Yeah, we're, getting, we're getting a bit short of time, but I know you've just released a new CD. Now, what's remarkable about that to me is it comes almost to the month, 57 years after the release of Lucky Devil. Um, that was your first thing. What, so what yes, inspired well, you to yeah. get back into the studio? Um, well, the thing, the thing was, I, I did this quite a while ago, and uh, it, was, it was just unfinished uh, stuff. So I, I, I finished up a lot of it over, over here. And um, so it's, it, you know, it was just lying in the can, and it's bloody good. Um, but it's a lot of the material that I've used use in my shows at the moment um, that people haven't been able to get hold of. For instance, I had a, you probably don't know this, uh, do you remember Mike Nesmith um, of the Monkees? He wrote a song called, um, her name was Joanne. I see Mike Nesmith from time to time where I get my car washed in Los Angeles. <laughs> right. <laughs> well... Uh, Mike wrote, wrote this song that uh, he had a big hit with it himself. And uh, I read an article where I was one of his favorites. And I thought, that's very nice. You know, and I listened to this song and I thought, gee, that was, uh, it could have been written for me. So when I got back to Britain, I recorded it. And I thought, well, now, how am I going to release this? Because at that stage, I didn't have a, a record company. So I thought, well, how am I going to release this through? Anyway, I was over doing a tour of, of Holland, and a guy called uh, Johnny Hoos came over to me, and he said, uh, have you got any new records? And I said, yes, I have. <laughs> Just so happens. <laughs> and I played him these, these songs, and he said, I like them. He said, can I release them? And I said, yeah, go for it. 
So he released it, the, uh, um, and that went uh, into to number one and made a huge hit on the continent. <laughs> Earned for me a gold record, and, and the, including a gold record for the, for the album as well that followed it. So that, that happened in one, 1976. So it was a good one. Um, but nobody in England, it didn't mean anything in England because it wasn't released over there. So I've now got that on the new album. Oh, yeah, good. and because uh, I do it in the show as well. What's the new album called? It's called Encore. Encore. And when you read the sleep notes, you probably realize why I called it Encore. It's to do with the things I've done on stage and the way I've, I, you know, um, certain songs are right for stage and, ha and, and, sure. and, and the feelings that you get with this business about your know, encore. And it's the, um, it's an encore of some of the material on it is, is, is were hits in this country. And some of them are hits in this country that weren't hits anywhere else. <laughs> so <laughs> so it, it enabled me to get a sort of new format for, for a, a, a nice new album. And it's going very well. I'm very delighted with it. Good. A couple of quick one-word answers. Who's the nicest performer you've ever worked with? Uh, I like working with Matt Monroe. Matt Munro. No, I, I just love Matt Munro. I just see he had the most beautiful voice, didn't he? Absolutely, I agree. Yeah, but, okay. but so, no, I'd, I'd say really Louis Armstrong. Louis Armstrong. Okay. Yeah. Good. All right. Who was the most talented person you've ever worked with? They're all so bloody talented, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, to, to be a star, most of them are, uh, are very original anyway. Um, I would, uh, gee, that's hard to give That's hard to answer that one. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. All right, we'll finish it on that note. Frank, thank you very much for speaking with me on the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Now, Thank you, Bob. Just can I uh, tell the people if they want to buy that new record, because they probably won't know where to go. You can get it from iTunes and places like that, you know. iTunes? But if they're actually... Encore. Uh, encore. But if you'd like to, you know, go to my website, which is www.frankarfield.com, <laughs> then um, they'll be able to buy it there as well, and it would be autographed for them. Okay. Now, you yeah. If you want to know more about Frank Ifield and his extraordinary career, simply go to Google. I went there this morning, and there's 280,000 entries. So I've been a busy boy. So there's plenty of reading. And I'll be back with more of the Bob Pritchard Radio Show on Voice America Business Network right after this short break. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. To connect with Bob, please send an email to bob at bobpritchard.com. That's bob at bobpritchard.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the Bob Pritchard Straight Talking, absolutely no bullshit business radio show on Voice America Business Channel, the number one global business radio show on, for entrepreneurs in the world. This year we're broad, this year, this week, we're broadcasting from Hollywood Boulevard in Los Angeles in the heart of Silicon Beach. Now, thank you for listening to 300 Bob Pritchard radio shows. It's been my pleasure each and every week. I'm looking forward to doing Another 300. Do you ever have a late night, perhaps had too much magic juice, and you get an attack of the munchies at 1 o'clock in the morning? Now there's a fast food dr drunks and last late night party as Taco Bell is launching a new feature to cater to one of its more important demographics, drunk customers. Come Thursday... Two days from now, the Taco Bell chain will test a feature that allows Lyft passengers to push a button to have their driver take them to a Taco Bell drive through between 9pm and 2am. It's an attempt to tap into the trend of young people increasingly carpooling through apps like Lyft. Lyft, 
particularly on nights out with friends. While Taco Bell offers delivery to customers and advertises the locations of its restaurants through the navigation app, Waze, which we all use, don't we? I do. I love it. Partnering with a rideshare company represents a new type of experience innovation. Taco Bell will test taco mode in Orange County, California later this month with plans to expand the service across the US next year. In addition to providing Lyft passengers the ability to order drive-through Taco Bell, Taco Mode also includes a custom in-car menu, free Doritos, Locos, Tacos, and what the company calls a taco-themed car. In other words... Taco Bell just made it a lot easier for drunk drivers to get Doritos, Locos, Tacos on the way home from the bar. Taco mode is like inverse delivery. Instead of delivering the food to you, they're delivering you to the food. That's pretty cool. There's a lot of food delivery out there and lots of apps and services that will allow you to take food to people. But this is really turning that concept on its head by delivering you to food and extending your evening. Now, Taco Bell realized that for every person who has asked their Lyft driver to make a pit stop at Taco Bell, there are likely those who weren't sure if it was possible. I must admit, I was um, in an Uber cab the other night and I wanted to stop off on the way and... Uh, I asked the driver if we could stop off and then redirect to the original location and he wasn't sure and we went through quite a bit before we decided that, well, to hell with it, we'd do it anyway. So people don't know that they can just stop off somewhere. Taco Bell CMO Marissa Thalberg says taco mode will erase any lingering uncertainty about whether they can stop and celebrate the ability to ride through in taco mode. Drunk late night customers are a key part of Taco Bell's business model, with nearly 15% of Taco Bell's customers visiting between 10pm and 4am. The partnership will also provide a reason for customers to pick Lyft over Uber. While Uber's got fast food partnerships of its own through Uber Eats, Taco Mode provides a different kind of delivery service, one that Taco Bell helps will result in fresher food. Now, do you get my 30-second read business newsletter? We now have about 1.7 million daily subscribers. I invite you to go to my website, bobpritchard.com, and enroll for my daily newsletter. It takes just 30 seconds to read and every day we tackle a different subject from advances in medicine to new apps to new technology to subjects like Hyperloop, autonomous cars, Ethereum, blockchain, Bitcoin. These are all subjects you should know about if you're going to survive in this new global revolution. It's free and the information in my 30-second read business newsletter each day is invaluable. I guess on the occasion of my 300th show, I should um, thank everyone for your tremendous support over these six years, to all of the unbelievable members of Metal, Media, Entertainment, Technology, Alpha Leaders, who have always been there for me and have provided over 100 interviews with the most prominent entrepreneurs in the country. So thanks to Ken. Ken Rakowski and all the members of Metal. I really, really appreciate it. And I love my time with Metal. So remember, if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up way too much space. It's easier. And it's also a lot more rewarding to do the impossible than it is to do the ordinary. Any bastard can do the ordinary. Anybody at all. It's a lot better to aim for the stars and miss than it is to aim for the gutter and succeed. And if you're always trying to be normal, you will never know just how amazing 
you can be. And I know you've heard this a million times, but perseverance and thinking outside the square and being bold and having a go is what it's all about and it's what makes people successful. I hope you have a sensational week ahead and I hope you can join me again next Tuesday for my 301st show, my first show on the way to 500. In the meanwhile, continue to be successful because the alternative really sucks. This is Bob Pritchard. You've been listening to the Bob Pritchard Radio Show. Please join us again next Tuesday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, enjoy another week of success in your business and your life.